Ayers on the Road, Parenting in a Modern World. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Hello there. We're back after a bit of a hiatus. We had a, a plane ride when we were in the air um, a couple of weeks ago, and actually, I think they put a rerun on, so we're glad to be back live. Oh, you're not even supposed to tell people that, Linda. They'd never know. They'd Unless they happened to hear the other one, they'd never know it was a rerun. Well, just in case they did, we wouldn't want to think yeah, that we're true. cheating. Yeah. We don't want to be in any way disingenuous on the radio. Um, it really is fun to be back because we have really been on the road, haven't we, Richard? Ayers on the road. You know, um, in our church, and many of you listening may share this belief, uh, children get baptized not when they're infants, but when they're eight years old. And we had two of our grandchildren turn that magical number of eight in the last couple of weeks. And, uh, boy, we were lucky, weren't we, Linda, because it's wintertime and it's cold here in Park City, Utah, where we live. And one of these must-attend baptisms occurred in Phoenix, which was pretty nice and warm. And the other one occurred in Maui, on the island of Maui in Hawaii. And so... Someone has to do it. Someone has to do this duty of going to the grandkids' baptisms. And so we just stepped up to the plate and did our duty. We did. And in addition to duty, we started out actually in San Francisco with a re- with work, a real speech. <laughs> a real it wasn't speech. just visiting our daughter, who we loved, which we loved doing. Actually, she went with us to the speech and added some credibility to what we had to say. That was so nice, wasn't it? When we speak on parenting, I'll tell you what, if we can bring one of the kids along, especially if it's one of our more impressive kids, no, no, just kidding, they're all impressive, but it sure does add credibility. And when we get to the question and answers, as we always do, and you you listeners that are seasoned to this show know that that's pretty much what Linda and I do these days is go around the country and sometimes around the world speaking to parents. We think it's a wonderful thing, not so much that we do a wonderful thing, but it's a wonderful thing that there's so much interest in being a better parent and having better family relationships that people are willing to fly us around to speak to them. But, but the thing that's great is that when we have one of our kids with us, then it lends a little credibility, and when it gets to question and answers, they don't want to ask us anything, do they, Linda? They want to ask, in this case, Charity, well, how was it really in your house? Well, did they really do that thing with the family bank? Well, did they really have that thing with the repenting bench? And boy, oh boy, you know, our, our kids don't let us get away with a thing. If we've exaggerated something, they're like, well, here's how it really works. <laughs> Actually, it was just delightful to have her with us because there were some things that um, she corrected us on, I must say, and other things that she went beyond what we had to say, and uh, especially in raising uh, your own money or saving your own money for college, I, I had totally forgotten that she really paid out a lot of money for her education when she first went to Wellesley. Well, we'd had a negotiated deal with her, as we did with, as we suggest that parents do with kids, where, you know, we thought ahead from about the time she was a sophomore or a junior, how much do you think you're going to be able to, and of course she'd been saving for a long time, and, and the way our family bank worked is that, uh, 
there was a certain part of the account that they had to designate, this is my savings, this is my money for college, and that part of the bank paid a high interest rate. And so she had accumulated a fair amount of money by the time she went, and we'd agreed in advance how much she would pay toward her education. It would have been a substantial percentage at most universities, but bless her little heart, she picked one of the most expensive colleges, liberal arts colleges in the world, so it turned out that she was paying a fairly modest percentage, maybe 15 or 20 percent of her tuition. But we've we've learned that over the years working with parents, that kids do not necessarily have to pay 100 percent of something in order to feel ownership in it. If they pay a percentage, and that could be anything from, you know, one of the first times we ran into that, Linda, is when our boys earning their own money, having a bank account in the family bank, and now wanting to buy basketball shoes for $150 a pair and and need and coming to us and saying, can we negotiate this a little bit? Yeah, in fact, they're probably more than that now. But um, it really is funny that um, they really took it seriously. They did it. It wasn't funny. I mean, it was just very interesting. I had forgotten, really, that she'd saved up that much money. It's been a few years now, but... It really was startling to me. So it was a double reason to have her along to add credibility. Yeah, so we're having this this parents meeting, and, uh, you know, we do our thing, and then we ask Ch- uh, Charity, who's now 25, but our youngest child, you know, what do you remember? How do you remember about this? And, wow, that was more than we bargained for because she got into this pain for part of her college and, and how much that meant to her and how strong an ownership she felt and how motivated she was to do her best on grades and then anonymously of course not mentioning any names she contrasted that with several of her roommates who she found it quite amusing or shocking depending on how you look at it that they didn't know how much their tuition even was they had no clue because their parents paid it all and they they were just there having a party and enjoying themselves and it never uh, really gave them the same kind of... And in fact, they, I thought the interesting thing about the way Charity portrayed it is she viewed it like an advantage. I had an advantage over them because since I had paid part of my tuition, I valued it more, therefore I worked harder, therefore I did better on my grades. So, you know, that's that's every parent's dream. Yeah, you know, these young adults are getting to be quite an issue and, and we'll go on in a few minutes on this, but I did... We got just an email today, actually. I was just uh, writing back to a mother who said, we have a 24-year-old who can't afford to be in college anymore, and he's got to come home now, and and we have a lot of other kids in the house, and he has a little different lifestyle than we do, and and I don't know what to do about curfew, and he has little different rules on the Internet and on Sunday and all that. What in the world do I do? Do I let him come home? What should I say? And, you know, there are a lot of situations like that where, and and her final comment was, you know, he could take out a student loan, but um, he really wants to avoid that. He doesn't want to get into debt. All of it sounded good. So I'll I'll tell her, I'll tell you what I told her, and then Richard, you um, pitch in maybe. By by the way, that's such a common question. We get it almost everywhere we go from, from, yeah older parents, you know, empty nest type parents saying there's even a term for it. Maybe many of you have heard it, boomerang kids. They leave and then they come back. And uh, it's pretty traumatic for a lot of parents. 
Well, what I told her was that, you know, money isn't everything. It just doesn't hurt to have a little student loan and have that kid feel some ownership of paying for his education. And maybe he already is, I don't know. But, but you know, I, there's a lot of talk about student loans and how bad they are and so on. But I don't – this was uh, BYU-Idaho where he was attending. I don't think that it's a horrendous um, – Tuition. It's one of the so, best education deals in the country. Yeah, it yeah. definitely is. And so I just suggested that she might want to suggest that he do that or set up a little list of rules if he comes home. This is the way it is. This is the time you need to be here. This is the, um, the Internet rules. This is this and that. And maybe he'll decide on his own he wants to. He'd rather take out a student. Well, and irrespective of whether he's in school. And, by the way, we'll get back to our little travel log where we're just – picking up threads of some of the things that parents asked about and that we talked about in San Francisco, the first leg of the trip. But the boomerang kids thing is it takes many forms, of course. I mean, some kids move back in at, the, at home because they can't afford their college. Some move back at home because they don't have a job and don't have any money. And there's all kinds of reasons. But, uh, you know, when usually when parents ask us that, we, we sort of – we we wish we could have caught them earlier, so to speak, because if, while well, the kids are young, while they're growing up in your home, if you have a well-established family economy where they're, 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 they're doing part of the household chores, they're earning money for what they do, they're keeping it in a family bank, they're getting interest, they're planning to pay for part of their college and so on, that, 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 that makes it so much more natural. Now, if one of those kids who's had that kind of training in your home goes off to college and comes back for whatever reason or, you know, loses a job or whatever and moves back in with you, that, that's an easy deal now because you've already established this, this house is a little economy. There's, it costs certain things to run this household. Now, you're coming back into the household. Here is... Here are the costs. Let's negotiate what percentage you should pay. And that's usually an easy thing for kids that have already been used to a family economy. On the other hand, if your household, and, and we're not trying to be critical, this is just the way it is in a lot of cases, if, you're, if your household has been sort of an economy where the kids were given money, uh, you know, it was just a, a sort of a giveaway system, now they're coming back in as adults it's a little harder to say, oh, by the way, the rules have changed. But that is what you have to do. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, you get a 26-year-old or a 30-year-old or whatever living back with you, then, of course, he should cover his share of the expenses. Well, I said be sure it's written down. Because, yeah. you know, you can kind of so it's clear. You know, say that in passing and so on. And, oh, I didn't understand that. I mean, it really does need to be written down. That may sound a little bit crass and so on as your own child, but it really is important to make them feel that accountability once they've left your home. Well, I think it respects the child. You know, it's like you're an adult. I'm going to treat you as an adult. I'd treat you as any other adult who I loved. I can't quite treat you the same because I love you in a different way. But but let's let's treat each other like adults in working out what is the win-win situation, what is the best for you uh, living under the same roof. Right. So let's go on, though, Richard, to the next location, which is Phoenix, um, where we have a family that we could probably ask for a loan at this point. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, all, all of our kids are different, and boy... All of you listening out there with with adult children, it's so interesting what different 
courses they take, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's it's, oh, it's wonderful to thing. see their individuality. I did want to say one thing on this. These next two stops we're going to talk about on Ayers on the Road, one being Phoenix and one being Hawaii, each place where we have a child who now has a child, one of our grandkids, who is being baptized into our church. I, I For what it's worth, I... I think the age of eight, which in our church we call the age of accountability, very interesting term. I mean, think about it. Accountability, that's another name for responsibility. That's, that's another way to phrase the goal we all have to, to raise responsible or accountable kids. And, and so I find that term very interesting, the age of accountability. And I really agree with it. If you observe kids or you think back on your own kids or on your kids now, there is a remarkable transition going on roughly in that age of seven or eight or nine years old where they're still kids and they're still very sweet and very naive in many ways, and they're still trusting i mean they still believe in you as a parent they still listen to what you say for goodness sake but at the same time they're pretty conceptual they're pretty capable of understanding things they're pretty capable of accepting responsibilities in some ways they're more aware and able and flattered by responsibility at age eight let's say than they than they are when they're teenagers so I love the term age of accountability, and in our church, and many of you are members of the same church, so you know this, that's a quite a rite of passage because they're now, they're now essentially being born again in the religious sense and saying now you are old enough to be responsible for your actions, responsible for your sins, if you will, in a, in a religious uh, vernacular. And and in in this case, this this little granddaughter in Arizona and the little grandson in in Hawaii are remarkable little kids who really that they're, they're they are they they sort of embody the age of accountability, don't you think, Linda? They were so darling, and you know, if you have a child or a grandchild who's eight, you know what a great age that is. It's just so perfect, and it was so fun to see. All the relatives, in fact, our daughter is married to a, a young man who has also eight siblings. So um, there are 18 aunts and uncles, well, 16, I guess, <laughs> not counting themselves, and uh, cousins beyond number, you know. And so it was so fun to see all that family together and celebrating one little girl's decision in life, and it was just really a delight to be with them. Just, you know, some of you that are familiar with baptisms in the LDS Church, the, the little kids sit right up by the font where, where the baptizee is, is immersed. And uh, in this case, <laughs> there were, I bet there were 50 kids sitting around, you know, trying to get a peek, and... Uh, it was really fun. It was pretty darn fun. I want to just say one last thing before, and maybe you do too, and then we'll go to a break. But I, w I want to just illustrate again my sort of love affair with eight-year-olds. Uh, and this will serve as a segue to after the break, our little grandson in uh, in Hawaii. I, I got to baptize him, which was pretty special. And I said, uh, Camden, when he called me to ask me if I'd baptize him, I said, well, Camden, what about your dad? Is he going to be uh, 
disappointed. I mean, maybe he should be the one to baptize you. And Cameron said, oh, no, I've talked this over with my dad, and we both think it would be really cool if the two of us were both baptized by the same person, you. And so it was fun, and so we had that. And when we come back from this little break, I want to just tell you a couple more things that make eight-year-olds really, really special. We'll be back. Linda's a little mad at me for spending so much time on these eight-year-olds, but one more really quick one, Linda, because it illustrates the point so well. This little guy, uh, after after you know we spent a little time with him, I said I wanted to praise him, and I said, Camden, you know your dad, of all my children, your dad is the hardest worker of all. And he thought for a minute, and he said, Well, grandfather, that is going to continue from generation to generation. <laughs> he is a little sweetie. Um, I do want to remember, we, we need to talk about our son who is also in Phoenix, which was so great to have a chance to spend some time with him. He is still unmarried after all these years, and I was just writing about him the other day because he has quite an amazing story. He's a brilliant kid, a computer whiz, and went when he went to college, he said, you know, I really love working with children. You know, I think maybe I'll just you know, go toward that, and and we kind of said, well, why don't you choose an occupation that really will bring in a little more money, and then you can support your family, and then you can work with kids on the side, and so on. Anyway, he ended up majoring in construction management, which is a great major, got a great job with the best building company, one of the best in the country in Washington, D.C., and after a year, he said, you know, I could see that I could work my way up here, I could become a manager and a partner after 10 years. He said, I can't do that. I have to work with kids. So he started substitute teaching. And he loved going to school every single day. Can you imagine a substitute teacher loving to go to school every day? He did. He sure did. He loved it. And he just progressed on and then ended up moving to Phoenix and is working at a charter school there. He's been there for 10 years and absolutely loves to go to work every day. And the kids and the parents love him and want their child in his class so badly. He teaches the third grade, second and third grade. And so, again, we keep learning the same lessons as parents, that the best thing we can do is to encourage our children to follow their dreams, not our dreams, not our idea of what would make them financially secure or what would, you know, be a status symbol or another arrow in our quiver, but what is their dream and what will fulfill them? And Josh, this wonderful teacher, son of ours, is the perfect example of that. And and so, you know, Phoenix is a big stopover for us because we've got uh, this. We've got five grandkids there with our daughter Shawnee, and then we've got Josh, who, in a way, is the father to a lot of kids in his school class. So, pretty fun stop on the trip. It was really fun. Shawnee is a mother advocate. She, since the time she could hold a baby, she's wanted a baby. <laughs> she <laughs> loves babies. And uh, she was just a shy, timid, little whiny child uh, with a stomach ache every Monday morning. <laughs> oh, she morning. wasn't that bad. She was it. so whiny. Don't you remember? She thought she had cancer every single day of her oh, life. Oh, yes, I know. But now, isn't it amazing? She's now, let, it, let me brag a little as a dad, she's now been named the National Young Mother of the Year by the American Mothers Association, National Association. She was first 
the Young Mother of the Year in Arizona and then went to a national convention where everyone shared their credentials, so to speak, and she's now the National Young Mother of the Year. And let me tell you something, they made the right choice. They did. She is such a good girl. She is very humble about it and says, I'm just always forgetting my purse and, you know, forgetting appointments and I got too much on my plate and and still she just handles everything beautifully. Their youngest daughter has a very rare syndrome called Bardet Beetle, which involves some scary things, blindness between 9 and 15 usually, and some obesity issues and so on. So they're watching every mouth that goes in, a food full of mouth that goes in. And it really is... Every food, full, that, of, <laughs> every food full of mouth that goes in, they're watching it. <laughs> anyway, it is sad, though, because this little girl is starting to want to eat so much, and part of it is hormonal, and we don't know what to do. She just handles all of that so beautifully and has a wonderful blog, which if any of our listeners are out there, some of you have probably heard of it because it's very popular. Everywhere we speak, the first people that come up to us always say, oh, we're in Orange Johnny's blog, we're in Johnny's blog. But anyway, it's 71toes.blogspot.com if any of you want to take a look. Well, and not to short shift anyone else, our, our, other, our older daughter, Saren, uh, who we're not talking about so much today simply because we didn't just visit her. But, uh, and after all, this is the show called Ours on the Road. But she has a wonderful website called powerofmoms.com that every mom ought to check out because it is empowering and it is strong. But back to our little, our little trip, um, I think it's interesting that uh, what you said about Shawnee and this this syndrome with one of her children, the way she is approaching it, again, the proud parenthood will show here a little bit, but she's approaching it with knowledge. In other words, she's researching. She is involved, and she wants to know everything there is to know about this genetic syndrome, what the chances are of, of medical advances countering some of the potential downsides of it and so on. And I think the more, even to the extent that she and you, honey, are going to England where the, the, the best expert on this syndrome resides, at some sacrifice, I might add, to me, if not uh, the pocketbook, <laughs> but but all I, I just I'm just trying to say I'm a little awkward saying this, but if you have a child with a syndrome or with a genetic problem or with any kind of illness, there's just no substitute for knowledge, and we live in an age when you can find out so much online. But the biggest thing you're probably trying to find out if you're a parent in that situation is who's the best expert on this in the world? Who knows the most and how can I find out anything that will help me to maximize this child's chances to do well and to be healthy? Well, the biggest problem, of course, is the same with any medical problem, and that is there are no answers to some of them. Nobody knows, you know, and even with mental illness, nobody knows how to bring a child out of that. No one knows exactly how these genes work and how this little cilia is moving and how they can correct it and so on. So they're all struggling to find out. Research on eyes and so on is huge in our life right now, but 
it really is amazing the difference it makes if you do feel like you know, even if you know that they don't know, <laughs> um, you know that there's some hope and some people working for you. Now, moving along with our little travels since last radio show, um, we when we got to Hawaii, this, this this is another illustration perhaps of what is emerging as kind of a theme today, which is encouraging your children to follow their own dreams as they become adults and so on and trying your hardest not to impose your ego or your idea of what a good life is on them. I mean, certainly we do that to some extent. Certainly we want our children to to, to follow good values and to... Um, to have this sort of faith that we hope that we have passed on to them and things like this. But I think we're a lot of, I'm going to be a little direct here, Linda, and say that this probably is a bigger problem among dads than among moms. And that's, that's, it's hard to generalize, and it can certainly exist in both places. But there, we run into so many dads who have such a preconceived notion of what their children should do pro- professionally, that it gets a little smothering, and it and it and it's dangerous in various ways. And you know what I'm talking about. It's the, you know, my son, the future doctor, my son, the future power attorney, my son, the the future CEO of a company or whatever. And sometimes it's done without a whole lot of attention being paid to the child himself and what kind of a a kid is he and what does he like and what makes him happy and what fulfills him and so on. Oh, how important it is that we, and I, and I can say that because, by the way, I am, I've been maybe the worst, or I think I've recovered. <laughs> I didn't want to say but, it. But, but early I, on, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, even on little things you got to be careful, like sports or music or the, these things you superimpose on them that they may not be have aptitude for i this this very well, son we're talking about just quickly this son we've just visited he was my first son and i just assumed you know i'm a big basketball guy he will be too and and i know you're going to tell us linda what i did with his crib oh yeah he put a basketball in the crib every night from the day <laughs> that baby was born he just figured he'd rub up against it and he would for sure turn into a basketball so, star so get this story because this story is worth a thousand words and, mm-hmm. and I'm the bad example I wanted him to do it and we're living in England at the time and you know he's growing up he's like three he's like three and a half four never seen basketball what am I going to do finally I, as a last resort I take him like an hour and a half in the car to to you know the Wembley Arena, and I say you you've got to see the Harlem Globetrotters, and he was not that interested except he loved the scoreboard. He kept looking at the scoreboard, and and I realized sitting in that basketball game that this boy was vastly more interested in numbers and electronics than he was in sports. And you know that kind of has passed on through the children. We kind of had an idea of maybe what they'd become as they were those little seedlings that we were watering and nurturing and giving sunshine. But, you know, you really never know. This child that's in Hawaii, we would never have guessed that he'd be doing what he's doing. He is. He and his wife are so fun. They just, I have to preface this by saying she's a Harvard grad and uh, Miss Las Vegas. 
And I he love her is combination. <laughs> our best worker and uh, met her when he was going to UMass and is a great kid. Was a contractor, built eight beautiful houses down in St. George in southern Utah. And then decided that and wasn't for Las them. in Las Vegas. He did a lot of building in Las Vegas. Yeah. Made a lot of money. And they just decided it wasn't for them. They were. They sat down, took a map, and said, where do we want to live? They pointed to New Zealand first and said, okay, let's go there, buy a house, we'll flip it, and probably make plenty of money to live on for the rest of the next year. So they have done that now three times. They went to the Olympic Peninsula for a year and a half, or was that two years? Anyway, Up in Washington State and yeah. had a wonderful experience. And did some amazing things with an old shack. And then now they've moved to Hawaii and they've bought, built a, I mean, bought a house that from built in 1924, and they're Totally trying to keep it historical, keep it very green, but they're restoring the whole thing. So on on the surface, you might say, well, wow, that's that's sort of your gypsy kids, that's your hippies, that's your nonconformist, off the grid kids. Well, to to an extent, that's right. But but again, the 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 thing we're trying to convey, and and not that we're perfect at this, but it's a lesson we're trying to learn is that you don't impose your dreams or your lifestyle or your, I I hesitate on lifestyle because that could mean values and and faith and things you really, really hope and pray that they will stay with. But as far as their professional lives and their, how they choose to live their lives and what their, you know, how they order their lives, let them follow their own dreams. Because here's a guy, when you look closer and closer at Jonah's life, I mean, you say, how much time are you spending with your kids? Well, maybe six hours every day, and I'm working with them, and we're homeschooling them, and I have this relationship. And so what a wonderful thing that is. Good luck, and we'll be talking next week.